Thank you for joining us here at First Baptist Church of San Antonio, whether online or on broadcast, in your homes or wherever you may be. We want you to know that you are more than welcome to be a part of the life of this church. And we want you to know that we want you to meet Jesus today. In order for this to happen regularly, we need your support. We need your prayers and we need your financial gifts. Please continue to give and be a part of what we do today. Let's turn our attention now to the reverse text for this week. And we're going to read aloud together the first half of our text. So Genesis 6, 5 through 12. If you would find it in your listening sheet and stand with me, we're going to read this aloud together. This then is the text for today. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Noah became father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. May God bless the reading of His Word. So, last week, I learned a new piece of First Baptist lore that I had never heard before, that hidden in our building is a secret safe. A secret safe hidden in a public place. In fact, I have stood on that safe countless times. To your curiosity, I am not standing on it now, but I have stood on that safe many times. And never once did I know what was underneath my feet. They're neatly tucked away in a floor, a hidden compartment that in a different era of our church life, we would secure the money from the weekend. And we would take all the money from the weekend and hide it in the floor until the banks opened on Monday. Now, we don't use that safe anymore. I personally don't know where the combination is to that safe anymore. But it's tucked away, a relic of a different day. The same thing is true of our minds. Tucked away underneath our imaginations is a little lockbox where we hide contents that aren't to be shared in mixed company. We typically don't reveal those contents to anyone. There under our imagination is where the terrors hide. 
And when our head gets heavy and we're alone, we sneak back there and we open the lockbox and we let it out. We let out the violence of our imaginations. The violence that they deserve. That's where we keep unshakable jealousy that we would never tell anybody about. That's where we keep our hatred of them that in our politeness we refuse to talk about. It's where we keep the lust so that we don't get caught. Then when no one is looking, we open the trap door and we fantasize of unspeakable things that engulf our dreams. Most everyone tells themselves this is harmless. But when you come to our text today, you know that isn't harmless. In fact, Jesus Christ Himself speaks to this and says otherwise that harboring hatred in our hearts and our minds is destructive. That, that harboring lust, even in a hidden lockbox under our imagination, it is going to spill out into your life, staining your skin like an exploding dye pack. And Jesus says that when we indulge our fantasized furies or dreamy lusts, it's as if you've already acted. And the mind then births the sin that spills out. So that when we harbor hatred in that little lockbox under our imagination, it will eventually break free into existence. This is how Genesis chapter 6 analyzes the sin of humanity prior to the flood. Now, I know as you work through Genesis chapter 6, there are a number of descriptors that catch our attention. As the, the part we didn't read that's before them, the sexual sin of the Nephilim. Or earlier in, in chapter 6, we, we see the, the, the wickedness and the corruption and the violence, each one stepping into a limelight at a different point in Genesis 6. But the most telling is what Genesis 6, 5 teaches. Every intent of the thought of the heart was on evil continually. You see, in the days of Noah, when some would, someone would sit down at the dinner table, they would begin to daydream. And they would go to the little hidden lockbox. And in their mind, they would celebrate violence. Lunch included a show of pummeling their neighbor in their mind. Or when they would put their heads on their pillow at night, they didn't count sheep. Instead, they would fantasized about how they were going to rip off their family. Every waking moment produced violent or corrupt visualizations that warmed their heart. That's what they were living for. As Genesis teaches, this is the way of humanity. You see it throughout the Scriptures from Genesis 2, all the way through to Revelation, there's this constant battle of humans 
of our ancestors treasuring pet sins that eventually terrorize everyone near them. Adam and Eve, Cain, Joseph's brothers, Saul, the Pharisees, it goes on for each. The, the, the sin seen in the mind manifests, it, manifests itself in wild actions. In Noah's day, the, the manifestations of those sins were described as corruption and violence. And that dreaming about corruption and violence tickled their imaginations. And out of that produced a world of death. Any work of their hands, anything that they did was polluted with anger. It was polluted with envy and greed to the point that everything that they did was sinful. There was nothing with good intentions. All action was evil. You, you may note as you're, you're working through Genesis 6, there seems to be special attention paid to violence. Violence is mentioned a couple of times here. That their action and their intentions absolutely were to harm another person. They, they weren't just trying to take care of themselves and other people were caught in the aftermath. They were actively working to hurt their neighbors. I mean, to the point that life was stolen. Every act, another blow to the hope of life on this earth. Those people around Noah came to embrace violence in every form. Life meant nothing to them. Life could be taken in an instant. Now, that reality is bleak, but, but we, can, we can process that. On some level, we understand that reality, and on some level, we have lived that reality. So we can process that because we've been hurt before. We have witnessed family members who have been terrorized by their own thoughts of violence. We, we don't like it, but we get it. We've seen it before. The next section, though, is, is a bit more difficult. It's harder for us to comprehend what's being said otherwise. Because there's an odd turn in this text that makes this text feel unfamiliar to us. Our God is described in shocking ways in Genesis 6. God is described in terms that should be reserved for humanity. We're told here, that God was sorry. God was sorry that He had created humanity. We're told here that God was grieved as if His heart had been pierced through. You can also translate that God repented. Those, those kinds of things boggle our mind. How, how could God be repentant? How could God change his mind? How could God fall into grief? How could, how, how could God be sorry about anything, anything? Now, for one, we know we have to walk with caution here, knowing that any description of God is an anthropomorphism, which means that we're using limited human vocabulary to describe an eternal indescribable God. 
so that words will always fall miserably short of God's character. But this is the best we have. This is the best we can do. We just need to know that our words, our pictures, our analogies will always fall short of the indescribable God we know. So, but with that, the words are the best we have. So let's take these words... And we see in these words, as God is sorry, God here is intervening in history. This is God making a dramatic change in the course of humankind. That on some level, humanity moves along at a steady pace, chasing after the wind. This, this is what we do. We're like a dog chasing our tail. We just chase after the wind. To the ends of the earth, we'll continue to chase after things that are unattainable. And, and we continue to do that in a cycle over and over again. But then there come certain points in human history when we're circling the globe, chasing the wind, when God breaks into time. God comes down into humanity and makes a difference. You see this most dramatically at the cross of Jesus Christ. God incarnate breaks into time and breaks into history and changes the course. Now a similar kind of event happens here in Genesis 6. Sin and death become prominent. And God changes the course of human history with a flood. And so on some level, when the words like sorry or repentant show up in Scripture, they're meaning that God intervened. God changed our course to show us who He is and the power and the authority of the throne room of God. Now, the other note in these words, and in particular the grief, is that sin has always been and will always be heartbreaking to God. Now, again, that is using human terms to describe a divine attribute, but this is one of the ways that we think about it. We, we picture something like this. Every sin is like a skunk in heaven that permeates the heart of God with grief. If you think back to the Old Testament stories and we get to the Leviticus and, and books like that, where we see the, the Old Testament priests would gather together and they would get the sacrifices together for the confession of the people and they would offer sacrifices unto God. And those sacrifices of the priests are described as a, a pleasant aroma unto God in heaven as if it soothes His grief. And this is the blessing of repentance. And all of heaven rejoices over one sinner who repents. A fragrant aroma unto our God. Our sin, though, is the opposite. Our sin is a repugnant burst that rebuffs the holiness of God. Now, another thing that makes this passage interesting is, is there's this striking contrast, not just between humanity and God, but between humanity and Noah. You see, as you're working through this text, you, you read the words that describe God, and they sound too earthy. 
In the same way, when you read the words that talk about Noah, they sound too divine. They're, they're rare. These sorts of uh, descriptions should be reserved for Jesus Christ. But occasionally we see this in the Old Testament where the Spirit of God uh, falls on someone and, and, and then pulls them near as God as possible. And, and Noah was one of those cases. And maybe the most helpful way for us to think about Noah here isn't that he was sinless like Christ. We hear the word blameless, and often we think sinless like Jesus. But that, that's not the way for us to think about Noah. Probably the best way for us to think about Noah is that he was single-minded. His heart, his mind, the lockbox under his imagination, all of it was in concert. All of it single-minded. You see, Noah did not set his mind on corruption or violence. His mind was set on God. He, he loved to imagine the ways of God and the hope of God. He, he loved to imagine God intervening of life on this earth. His mind was set on God and God's ways. He wanted to walk with God. He rejoiced in walking with God. He wanted to walk out of the corruption. He wanted to walk out of the violence and into the holiness of God. Most of the people around him could care less about the holiness of God. And Noah said, I want that. I don't want corruption. I don't want violence. I want to walk with God. And that's what was in his heart. That's what was in his mind. That's what was hidden in the lockbox. He wanted to be near to God. So when he sat down at the dinner table to daydream, or when he laid his head on his pillow at night, he pictured life with God. And he, he lived a life that was focused on holiness above everything else. It didn't matter what his week was about. He didn't, it didn't matter what, what he was called to do at work, at home, with his children, it was a single focus on God the Creator. You see, Noah didn't dream of hurting a rival or ripping off local merchants. He liked to daydream of heaven and what heaven on earth would look like. And this, this was in a single-minded pursuit of God. And God saved him. God, God saved him from the overwhelming wrath that all of the rest of humanity was going to endure. You see, Noah was so focused on God that the rising waters wouldn't matter to him. God said, build a boat. And he was so focused on God, he said, fine, let's build a boat. He didn't care what other people said or thought or what was going on around him because of this 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 single focus that I'm going to obey God whatever God tells me to do in spite of everything else around me. And God saved him and his family. You see, though this earth stunk to high heaven, God made it a point to save Noah and wash this earth clean with the cleansing waters of heaven. 
You see, this, this work that we're talking about here in Genesis 6 is holy. And in its holiness, it is eternal. You see, God's grace wasn't just reserved for then and there. Right? Scripture does not stop at Genesis 7 or 8 or 9. It keeps going. And it, and it keeps going because God's grace wasn't reserved just for them, but God's grace is abundant. And God's grace flows from heaven on His children still this day. That as complete as the flood was in its destruction, so too the grace of God is just as effectual in its salvation. You see, as we move forward out of the days of the Torah, we skip ahead to the days of Jesus Christ, and we find God in His graceful salvation there too. He's doing this very same work in Jesus Christ that He was doing in Noah's day. But, but this now in Jesus Christ is, is on this grander scale. You see, in Noah, we hear the story of, of eight saved. But in Jesus Christ, in all who know Jesus Christ as Lord, we see many saved. Exponentially more in the church age by the Holy Spirit than in the days of the flood. You see, in Noah, we saw a glimpse of what God was going to do in Jesus Christ incarnate. You know, it's telling. There's this scene in the Gospels in Matthew 14 that we read earlier in the service. That as this storm beats down the horizon on the Sea of Galilee, it's, it's, it's tearing up the sea to the point that, that waves are breaking over the bow of the apostles' boat. They're unsteady. And as that happens out on the chaotic waters, Jesus sets out on a course and is undeterred by the wind and unaffected by the chaotic waters. You see, Jesus sets out and He walks on the water. And, and he's, not, he's not staying afloat because He's wearing shoes made out of pool noodles. But, but something very different. It's as if every particle of water obeys Jesus' voice. Even contrary to their own nature, the, the molecules of hydrogen and oxygen support the weight of Jesus Christ even though they aren't supposed to. That even they obey Jesus. The wind and the waves obey Him. And He trods across them gracefully. And you know, even still, in that same scene, Peter steps out onto the chaotic waters as he steps out with the Christ. And you know the story. As long as Peter's eyes are, are singularly focused, as long as his eyes are focused on Jesus Christ, extraordinary things happen. But the very moment that Peter takes his eyes off Jesus, he starts to sink, and drowning is imminent. See, if you, you fix your eyes on the Christ and, and not worry about anything else, 
if, if you'll be single-minded in your focus, not to, to worry about what everybody else is doing, not to worry about what everybody else is saying, but, but to, to fix your eyes on Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, the Spirit of God will take you to unimaginable realities, physics-defying work that only the Creator of the universe could arrange. You know, I know when we look around us, there are times this earth feels as dire as Genesis chapter 6. People seem to cheer depravity and lust for violence. But in God's grace, as He does in the Old Testament, He did in the New Testament and provided a way out in Jesus Christ. You see, the Scriptures teach us that you can find favor in heaven, but it isn't by your own effort, and it isn't by your own ways. You can be called righteous in the throne room of God, but it's not by your own effort. It's not by your own ways. You can be blameless. You can walk with God this week. You can walk with God across the chaotic waters of this life. If only we would surrender all to Jesus Christ as Lord of our lives. Everything. All of it. Our actions. Our hearts. Our minds. Even all those things kept in that little lockbox underneath our imagination. May Jesus Christ come and save us from all of it. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, come and save us. Save us from our sinfulness. Lord, open our hearts and our minds to Your truth. And Lord, make us single-minded. Lord, on our own, it's failure. But in Your Spirit, we can know grace and purpose. And Lord, we pray this morning that You would open our eyes and open our ears to Your reality. Lord, that we could see through the temporary nature of all the physical things around us and cling to that which is eternal. It's in the name of our Lord and risen Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.